Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're talking about the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, a personal tragedy for his family and those who knew him, but also to many a watershed moment for Russia itself. He was the most prominent critic of President Vladimir Putin. He was a key mobilizing figure within Russia's much-reduced, almost obliterated opposition. His charisma and personal courage in exposing corruption and embezzlement by the Kremlin were much admired in the West and seemingly within Russia too, where hundreds of people have risked arrest to lay flowers for him. He was also a controversial and nationalistic figure whose position on Ukraine shifted but had at times enraged Ukrainians, especially with his comments over Crimea. The true circumstances behind his death at the Polar Wolf Penal Colony deep in Siberia may never be known, but world leaders have said that they hold Vladimir Putin directly responsible. We're going to talk about Navalny, the man. We'll talk about what he did, what he said, and what his death says about Russia, now a quarter of a century under Putin. We'll also try and answer the question of what Russians think about the state of their country, a very hard question to get at with the oppression that is going on there, what they think about the war in Ukraine and Putin's now almost total retreat from the Euro-Atlantic world order. And we're going to touch right at the end on the big question, Not it's not going to be the last time, but of, of frozen Russian assets and whether they should be used to fund Ukraine's war effort and reconstruction at a time when Kiev desperately needs the money. Joining me down the line to help me discuss all this is Bill Browder. He was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005, but became an enemy of Vladimir Putin after exposing corruption in Russian state-owned companies and after the death in custody of his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. He's, for many years now, worked as a human rights and anti-corruption campaigner. Welcome, Bill. Great to see you. Very good to have you here. Joining me as well is Nikolai Petrov, a consulting fellow with our Russia and Eurasia program. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Very, very good to have you here. And finally, with me in the studio is Yulia Meneva, an academy fellow also with our Russia and Eurasia program, who before her time with us was head of news for Novaya Gazeta, the main independent newspaper in Russia, now published in Riga since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Well, let's start, as I said, with talking about Navalny himself. Yulia, perhaps I can start with you. You were his neighbour for a time. What was your experience of him? So I started working in journalism in uh, 2014. Uh, At that point, Navalny was already undoubtedly the biggest opposition figure in Russia. It was after the cases of Kirov Lies and during the case of Efrasha that later the government would use to put Navalny in prison that he's never going to leave. Before that, there was a mayoral campaign in 2013. And for me, that was a first big election. I was a 19-year-old student and I had a chance to vote for the first time. And I was volunteering in Navalny's campaign and I was giving away his agitation newspaper in the Moscow underground. It's just impossible to imagine something like that going on in Moscow these days. So at that point, he would gather some meetings around the underground station in Moscow to talk to the local dwellers. And I was always surprised how bypasses that would usually by default be against Navalny would just come around, take the microphone, ask him a tricky question, but after that would always shake his hand and like take a picture with him. 
So I would say that Navalny definitely had a gift of a gap and um, his superpower was to successfully communicate with different strators of Russian society. Talking about that campaign, one of my sources was telling me that FSB, which is these days KGB, trying to find some dirt and some dark spots about Navalny and they were following him and apparently they just couldn't find anything. And some of the bosses in FSB were saying, oh, you know, this is probably the guy that we actually need. He doesn't even have a mistress or something. So probably we should work for him now. So, yeah, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's a great example how Navalny could communicate with different people. Let me go to Bill. Thank you very much for that. Bill, Navalny was your friend and you campaigned together. What do you think his death means for Russia? I think it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy for First for his family, and second for his friends, and thirdly for every person in Russia. So Alexei Navalny, I don't think he set out to be a politician. He just sort of naturally gravitated into it. He discovered the thing that everybody cared about, which was that these crooks that ran the country were stealing all the resources of the country for yachts and planes and, and villas. And as he started to expose that through his uh, social media, everybody started to gravitate around him. And, and of course, he's a very handsome, tall, charismatic person. And with this platform of getting rid of the crooks and thieves, as he said, it was just like this natural, perfect, natural political platform. And I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's just so stark. You have this old man, Vladimir Putin, who's a crook, a murderer, who's sitting at the top of this country, but not really at the top of the country because the people want him there. Just he's sitting there and desperately trying to stay in control so he can keep his money and save his own life. And then you've got this other guy, Alexei Navalny, who's young, attractive, and he has like a positive message for everybody and and, uh, doesn't have any skeletons in his closet. And and it's just such a um, stark contrast. And, And you can see why Putin wanted to kill him because, you know, he makes Putin look terrible. And, you know, everyone says, oh, Putin has these high approval ratings. That's complete nonsense. Putin doesn't have any approval ratings. The moment that people could have a proper, if there was proper choice, if there's real competition, Putin would lose in a landslide. Nikolai, what do you make of this? How much was he an effective opponent for Putin? Well, I think Navalny was a unique politician who managed to become a most well-known politician in the absence of public politics. Uh, He did start as a blogger, became famous for his anti-corruption investigations, and uh, on the eve of previous 2018 presidential elections, he managed to establish the single real opposition political party, which was supported by young generation and which had branches in almost all of Russian regions. That's why he became uh, the real threat Uh, for the regime, and he did manage to broaden his uh, electorate, and uh, he managed to become the uh, second most recognizable uh, politician after Putin without using all these state media and so on. And I mentioned at the top that he said uh, some things in the past about Crimea that didn't make Ukrainians happy, about not giving Crimea back and so on. How should we regard his some of the nationalistic things he said? Well, first of all, Navalny, as any human being, could make mistakes. And he did make one in 2008 with regard to uh, the war in Georgia, 
And since that time, he did apologize uh, several times. Uh, when it goes about Crimea, I think uh, it was different. And we should look at uh, what he said about Crimea within the context. And there are two very important points. One is connected with the fact that Navalny is a polit- was a politician, not an expert. He was a politician of a populist type, seeking for the electoral base, and he couldn't ignore the fact that overwhelming majority of Russians consider Crimea to be a historic part of Russia. It would be strange uh, to wait for a politician who is trying to come to power, who is fighting to broaden uh, his electoral base, to say something which is absolutely not supported by majority of his uh, fellow countrymen. But the second point, I think, is even more important, and Navalny himself did explain this. It's the need to ask Crimeans not to decide whether Crimea should uh, be returned to Ukraine or should be kept uh, within Russia, in Moscow or in Kyiv. And this makes uh, Navalny a kind of democratic uh, civil nationalist, and I don't think there are any reasonable alternatives when in future the fate of Crimea will be decided. You make a really important point there about where public opinion is in Russia, something we're going to come on to, but also that other countries, I'm thinking of Western Europe, should project everything onto Navalny that they might want from a Russian leader. They need to deal with the reality of, of indeed what Russians want. Yulia, we've watched a lot of Russians now risk arrest, risk their safety by placing flowers at the uh, monument to victims of political repression. We've seen some of those arrested indeed. What does this tell us about the enduring support for some kind of opposition? So we should remember that in Russia 2024, there is uh, absolutely no safe ways of protesting left because there is no rule of law in the country. And there were around 400 people arrested in 39 cities for laying flowers in uh, in the memory of Navalny. I should mention that Navalny's organization and structures around him are labeled extremists and uh, undesirable organizations in Russia. And such sentiment as lying flowers might be considered as a participation in activity or, or extremist or undesirable organization. And in turn, it can turn into a criminal case. Again, what it tells us is that the regime now completely moved from autocracy to totalitarianism and um, military dictatorship, that the laying flowers to the memorial of victims of political repressions became a criminal activity. So it's another signal that there will be no return to the state before the 24th of February 2022. And this is this new reality is irreversible and um, everyone should feel apprehensive from now on and everyone just should forget about Navalny. But at the same time, we don't see hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Moscow, but I feel like it shouldn't fool us because there are many Russians that who care about the fact that Navalny is dead and um, treated as a personal tragedy, as uh, for many he was a face of hope for free democratic Russia that was now brutally taken away from them. Bill, I wonder if you can pick up this point about whether there is any opposition left. There's a long list of Russian opposition figures killed during the Putin regime, Boris Nemtsov. I'm thinking, are there any potential successors now? 
Well, I mean, Putin's whole objective is to make sure that there are none. And of course, Alexei was the obvious, real future president of Russia. And, and by killing him, he's gotten rid of any potential successors. And and it's it's correct that that there is no opposition in Russia right now because you you can't be opposition in Russia without going to jail or dying. As, as, and, and that's kind of the message. The message is, if we can kill Alexei Navalny, the consequence of, of being a political opposition to Putin is death. But having said that, I mean, I think that, that there are a number of people. There's Vladimir Karamurza, who are sitting in jail. He was Boris Nemtsov's protege. He's serving his 25-year sentence in Siberia. There's Ilya Yashin, another opposition politician who's spending eight years in jail. And there's if there was any oxygen for real competition in politics, Putin would 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 definitely not not be the president. I mean, it's even if he was a good guy, which he's not, he's a monster. But even if he's a good guy, you just can't sit around for 24 years and expect that people still want you. They get tired of you. And and certainly they would be tired of him based on everything that he's done over the last 24 years. But but I think that that um the only possibility of political change in Russia is public uprising. I don't think that there's any other other way it's going to happen. I don't think that there's ever going to be another election until a public uprising. And what I would say, and it's very interesting for me to to witness this, is that Putin is really good at killing individuals. He's good at like targeting, you know, Prigozhin because he challenged him on the battlefield, and good at targeting Navalny and, and Nemtsov because they were popular. But he's really bad at dealing with public uprisings, and um, he hopes they die down. He tries to quash them, but. I can imagine a scenario in Russia where the situation gets so bad for the people that the risk of being imprisoned or hurt during an uprising is overcome by the just absolute degrading life that everyone is experiencing. And I, I can easily imagine that, you know, a situation where, where Putin tries to put it under control and it just ends up growing. And that, that will be the way that this whole thing uh, comes undone. Nikolai, Bill mentioned Prigozhin. Do you think there's any likely opposition from the military? First of all, I don't think uh, that Prigozhin was a kind of opposition within military. There was, of course, a kind of clash between military from one side and secret services from other side, and Prigozhin did clearly represent the second uh, camp. But uh, the war is going on, and uh, it means uh, that uh, 100,000 of Russians are uh, participating there. Uh, they do have uh, weapons, so nothing can be excluded. And it's the real threat for the country when and if all those guys uh, will come back. That's why, in my view, Putin is not interested to end the war. He's interested uh, to keep it, perhaps not that intensive, but not to end it and not to respond uh, to the very rational questions, what were the reasons and why the country lost that much uh, in order to, to achieve goals uh, which were still not formulated. So I am not waiting for any serious uh, military uh, well opposition, but everything can happen. I wish podcasts could capture expressions of faces. I can see your face and the the, uh, the the grimace you gave when I when I asked that question was quite something. Yulia, can I come to you just finally on this, this this point about Navalny, whether his widow, Yulia Navalnaya, might in any sense be a focus of, of opposition? She took the decision 
as she said, to, to speak at the Munich Security Conference just after the news of his death came through and has been prominent in the past few days. What do you think? So I would say that for most of Russians, um, Yulia Navalny's face is not familiar, but obviously her surname uh, speaks much louder. Uh, she was quite popular uh, within the opposition as a kind of iconic figure of a perfect mother and wife because she was always well, it was Alexei Navalny during protests in the court hearings after he was poisoned. And um, a lot of people were admiring their, you know, romantic relationships between them. I remember there was idea in uh, 2018 during presidential election to actually put Yulia forward to presidential election uh, instead of Alexei Navalny because he, because he wasn't allowed to to participate. But at that point, people were thinking that rating of Alexei Navalny is higher and kind of political rating is not easily passed to someone else. But now we're going to see what kind of politician um, Yulia Navalny is because Navalny was wearing many hats. He was investigator, uh, he was politician, and he was street protest leader, and that's why he was successful. But Yulia at the moment has something else to offer, and I feel this something new is the fury um, because the regime stands on propaganda and repression which leads to the fear and demobilization of society. I feel like the fury is actually the very emotion that will lead to the mobilization of society. Bill, you're nodding. Yeah, it's um, Putin created a monster by killing Alexei, thinking that he got rid of somebody. And then all of a sudden, um, his wife, who who shares all the same characteristics, she's she's tall, she's attractive, she's charismatic, but she has this uh, uh, this one thing which... It's just unstoppable, which is the righteous anger of a woman whose husband was murdered by this little dictator. And I think that that's very, very powerful. And I think that Putin um, underestimated it. And I think that that's going to be viral in the same way as Alexei was. And and uh, and everybody is desperate, to, desperately hoping for some continuation of the of the hope that Alexei um, offered, and she's offering that. And I I, I wouldn't underestimate in any way um, the, how this thing is going to play itself out with her in charge of the opposition. Well, let's go to the bigger question of what Russians think of Russia at the moment. And Nikolai, I wonder if you could start us off with whether there are ways of working out what people think. We've had uh, diplomats, Western diplomats, uh, telling us, look, uh, this is an environment where people's children can be you know, taken away from them or threatened if, if they draw a pro-Ukrainian picture at school or something. This is not an easy environment in which to work out what Russians are thinking. Yes, absolutely. But I am not that much hopeful uh, as some of experts who are saying that, well, in case of totalitarian or quasi-totalitarian regime, uh, we should not look at sociological polls. They are uh, not giving us any uh, real uh, information. I think that uh, majority of Russians do share apathy uh, and uh, that's enough for the Kremlin. The Kremlin doesn't want them to be mobilized and to support wholeheartedly uh, what the Kremlin is doing. It's pretty risky. Uh, what the Kremlin wants and what it gets, it's uh, pessimism and uh, it's escapism when uh, any person who cannot live in psychological comfort with the idea that his government is committing crimes and uh, 
is responsible for the bloody war. Uh, these persons are looking for any kind of niche, are uh, uh, focused uh, not that much on the fate of the world and what the country is doing uh, and whether they are responsible at least partly for what uh, their leadership is doing, but they are focused on their concrete work. And this is what we have now with regard to elites uh, and with regard to ordinary Russians. So we do not have active support. We do have certain minority, although very visible minority, who do share Navalny's uh, views and uh, who do not support the war, but we do have majority uh, who are eager to keep uh, being passive. Yulia, you've got some data about Russian attitudes to the war in Ukraine, which I'd love to hear, and also your sense as a journalist of what Russians now know about the world outside Russia. As Nikolai mentioned, we probably shouldn't believe the data in authoritarian regimes, and especially in the times of war. Uh, but we have two independent sources, which is Livada and uh, Russian Field. And uh, the picture looks like, as of November, December, around 75% uh, of Russians actually support actions of Russia in Ukraine. So they support the war in Ukraine. And uh, people believe that special operations, is what it's called in Russia, is being carried out successfully. But at the same time, and there is a glimpse of hope, that actually from 48 to 55% of Russians are now in favor of peace negotiations. And this number continues to grow. It's actually the first time since the start of uh, the full-scale invasion when this number outweighs those in favor of continuing the special military operation. And the other interesting fact is that usually continued military action is generally supported by wealthy respondents, while low-income respondents are usually in favor of transition to negotiations. And uh, I feel like there is a big parallel, we should draw a parallel between what Russians worried about, because according to polls, uh, on the first place, there would be inflation and rising prices. The second place would be so-called special military operation and things around it like second mobilization, let's say. And the third thing is corruption. So I feel like this growing number of people that want Russia to move to peace negotiations is a bit reassuring, but at the same time, I feel like it comes from general tiredness of the war and declining living standards and growing prices within the country rather than actually people thinking that we are doing something wrong in Ukraine. That's really elegantly put. Thank you. Bill, I wanted to ask you, as I said at the beginning, about this uh, very contested question of seizing Russian assets for Ukraine. All kinds of people um, have come out in, in favor of this. It was a big point of debate at the Munich Security Conference where you and I have been recently and the the EU and G7 countries froze over 300 billion US dollars of Russian central bank assets after the invasion of Ukraine uh, the recent invasion of Ukraine not not Crimea but there is a big debate about whether or not those can be handed to Ukraine to help rebuild or even for its defense. And we've got Euroclear, the European financial organization, which holds many of those saying, no, don't do this. And quite a few American senators saying, no, this will ruin the financial system. Where are you on this? Well, I, I think that it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, Putin broke international law, invaded a neighboring country, has caused, depending on whose estimates you believe, up to a trillion dollars of damages. 
And um, thankfully, at the moment that the war broke out, um, we in the West froze, as you say, for more than 300 billion of his central bank reserves. It's the correct decision um, morally. It's the correct decision financially. And it's the correct decision politically. I mean, it's sort of absurd to say we should be spending money, taxpayer money on Ukraine before Putin spends his own money on Ukraine and we have his money. And so what, what I see happening is, is it's one of these things where if you, ha- if you ask like a prime minister to, you should do, or say to a prime minister, you should do this, he'll, he'll then ask his, his legal counsel, can I do this? And legal counsel will say, absolutely not. It's not legal. And then if he were to ask a different question, though, is, is if he asks his legal counsel, how do I do this? And the legal counsel will say, well, actually, you know, you, you, you need to use this law and that and you need to put the, together this legislation so it, it all works. What I can say for sure is that Euroclear, which is a private company, shouldn't be determining sort of uh, geostrategic security issues. I mean, it's not their place to have any role in this debate. I mean, it's it's completely irrelevant. And um, and nor should banks or anyone else, for that matter. That this is a this is a defense decision, and it should be made in the obvious way of of confiscating the money. And particularly as we're now, you know, seeing people whining about in Congress about sending sixty three billion to Ukraine, and more importantly. Uh, Donald Trump is going to come in, or may may come in. Let's say we don't. I, uh, thank you. I was just about to leap in there. So it, this is not a done deal yeah. with the American people. He, he, he may come in. He may not come in. But let's say he comes in. He then cuts off Ukraine, and then the, then the European Union and UK and other allies will have to decide: Do we want to double down um, when this is already expensive, or do we want to give up? And and there's probably a lot of people in the give up category. And so it's it, this 300 billion I view as Donald Trump insurance. All right. Well, there are other points of view, and I'm thinking of central bankers who say, look, this is going to undermine the financial system, but we don't have time now to go into that, though, I and I often say this on the podcast, uh, this one is really coming. We will have a big debate uh, about that in a few weeks on uh, the use of, of such assets. Nicola, I was wondering if uh, you could just help us look forward to the election that is coming. Um, it, it, no one feels in very much doubt about uh, that, that Putin will emerge as the winner of it. But what should we look for in it, particularly after Navalny's death, in terms of this this question of what Russians think? Well, I think uh, that elections are very important for any uh, authoritarian leader. And uh, it's time when regime cannot feel being safe as uh, uh, usually. And there are two problems I see in connection to uh, forthcoming Russian elections, presidential elections. One is connected uh, with the fact that uh, Putin, who, who did stage the whole thing, who did choose uh, candidates to compete with, he is in a very complicated position because each time he should demonstrate higher results than in previous elections, especially now because the war is going on. And uh, the Kremlin should demonstrate that majority, overwhelming majority of Russians uh, support this war. But even last time, the Kremlin did use all possible resources to demonstrate high uh, voting results. So it becomes more and more complicated because it's not that easy to report about any results, as we've seen in case of Belarusian elections, when Lukashenko uh, did try to demonstrate uh, results much higher than looked reasonable, and it caused huge uh, popular unrest. So one problem for the Kremlin is to get results higher 
than uh, they did get last time. It's about 60 million votes, but it should be got uh, in uh, all parts of Russia, including Moscow and St. Petersburg and big cities where uh, the attitude to uh, the regime and Putin is not that positive as in other parts of the country. But there is another part of the problem. It's to avoid any scandals, to avoid any uh, speculations uh, based on evidences that uh, uh, there are fraudulent elections. And this is rather complicated as well. That's why what has happened in case of uh, Nadezhdin, one of the candidates who was not registered, but there were huge lines and he was the single one claiming to stop the war. It did uh, already damage the image of elections in terms of overwhelming majority staying behind uh, President Putin as the permanent leader of the country. Yulia, what will you look for? I agree with Nikolai, and I don't think that this year Kremlin would have any problems actually getting the 80% as they want to do so, because um, if if we look at the polls, um, when people ask who they're going to vote for if the election is happening next Sunday, around 60% at the moment say it's going to be Vladimir Putin. I feel like there is a growing feeling of isolation in Russia and uh, among Russian people, not only because of Western narratives about Russia, but also because of the limited access to quality goods and um, services due to sanctions. And so people feel excluded. And again, I I feel like this is an important thing to mention, that most of people who say that they they support a special military operation, as it's called in Russia, and who support Putin, they never had a travel document to actually go abroad. Saying that, I think this is why it's important at the moment for the West to find the right words to communicate with Russians and to actually communicate to them, this is not them that the West wants to punish. It's the is the regime in that country. And I feel like the West should find the right words for that. And I was asking you just a moment ago, uh, as a journalist, what the quality of information that Russians have is when they're, when they're looking at things like this election or indeed Navalny's death. I feel like it really depends. So let's say among young people, obviously, they do have access to VPNs and that's why they would have access, access to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, social media and access to independent media as well. Whereas older people obviously don't know about such technologies. And now there is a law in Russia that actually prohibits companies from advertising any type of VPN. So probably things are going to get worse in terms of access to information. And again, a lot of politically active people left Russia either when the full-scale invasion started or after they announced mobilization in September 2022. So we now actually see that people in Moscow, they're more supportive of the war rather than people in Russian regions. It's really hard to say, whereas people, like while people in villages don't have a good connection to internet and probably they're not reading opposition media, at the same time they're feeling the impact of the war more than those living in, in, in big cities. So yeah, I feel that's, that's the trend. Let me just ask you what was occurring to me when Bill was talking. You had an interesting point before 
we were actually started this recording about how you thought the assets of Russia ought to be used. My position is that Russian frozen assets should be passed for the restoration of Ukraine. But there is a position that I heard that some of this money might actually be saved for the future Russia because the country will need this money uh, after the transition from totalitarian regime to something more democratic and uh, liberal. It's a very debatable point, uh, but yeah, I think it's not the first priority as well, but I feel like this is something that should be kept in mind when discussing these questions. Nikolai. Well, in my view, there should be the list of priorities. And of course, to restore Ukrainian economy and to cover this huge damage, uh, which is result of the war, is priority number one. If only something will remain, I would uh, well join Yulia's position that it would be good to keep it in order to promote Russia's transition to democracy, but not at the expense of uh, Ukrainian recovery. No, not at all. Yeah, this was, it wasn't my point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but at least you took us through to a possible vision of uh, another Russia in the future, which has not been uh, where the center of gravity of this conversation has been. We're going to have to stop there. A big thank you to my guests, Bill Browder, Yulia Maniva, Nikolai Petrov. Do follow them all on X or Twitter, whichever name you prefer. Their details are going to be in the show notes. And a reminder you, that you can find all of our podcasts on all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media. So please do like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. To read more from all of our experts or to find out about our events, and we have a lot coming, including on these subjects, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, and you can find there the work of our Russia and Eurasia program. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. See you next time. <laughs>